You're listening to Ping, a podcast by Apenic discussing all things related to measuring the internet. I'm your host, Robbie Mitchell. Today we're continuing the theme of our last episode and learning more about the intricacies and perceived complexities of the QUIC protocol from one of its contributors and proponents, Robin Marks, a web protocol postdoc researcher at KU Leuven in Belgium and soon to be technical solutions architect at Akamai. Having researched HTTP2 performance as part of his PhD, Robin became involved in the development of HTTP3 and QUIC in the ITF while they were being designed, as well as created popular QUIC and HTTP3 debugging and testing tools QViz and QLog. Robin, thanks for joining us on Ping. Hi, Robbie. Thanks very much for inviting me. So in our last episode, Apenix Chief Scientist Jeff Houston gave us a short history on the recently standardised IETF QUIC protocol, RFC 9000, and shared some initial results from a study that Apenix Labs has begun to measure the use and performance of QUIC. Although it's early days for QUIC, its usage has been growing thanks largely to Google and Apple and proponents like yourself, Robin. Uh, Still, a major challenge in deploying it further is the perception that it, like other new protocols, is overly complex to configure compared to the OG protocols like TCP. What are your thoughts on this? I think that's a very interesting question because I'm not entirely sure I would agree with the statement that protocols have become more complex over time or with what some people often say that QUIC is more complex than TCP, for example. It is, of course a little bit more complex. But when you look at what is actually in Quick, it is really just everything that we've learned about TCP and also TLS. That's, of course, one of the complexities that Quick has. It includes TLS, so you really need to look at TCP plus TLS. But if you put those together and you look at how they've actually evolved and what you really need now in 2022 to actually deploy a full TCP plus TLS stack with all the goodies, all the performance improvements, all the security aspects there, you really don't end up that far from what Quick is eventually doing. So in terms of the basic features, in terms of the basic concepts, Quick is not that much more complex. There are a few more additional features that make things sometimes easier. But in essence, I wouldn't call it too difficult. I would even say the opposite is true. This is very funny for me because I knew about TCP from you know my university days, but I really started getting into this protocol stuff with Quick. And with Quick, you have like proper packet numbers. And acknowledgements acknowledge packet numbers. And that is so much easier to reason about and to think about than TCP sequence numbers. Till now, TCP sequence numbers trip me up <laughs> when really, you know, trying to write debugging tools for them. Well, quick packet numbers and, and how they are acknowledged and how they're dealt and how that simplifies congestion control or retransmission logic. It's so much simpler than TCP, at least for me. Maybe that's because I really started to get into this with quick, but it's easier. And there are other stuff as well that Quick just leaves out, you know, some of the outdated stuff from TCP, like the urgent pointer or, or the push flag or things like that. Those are all gone. And I think something very similar happened with TLS 1.3 compared to TLS 1.2, where 1.2 has a lot of extra messages, a lot of extra stuff that is in there, a lot of extra ciphers as well, if you look at the cryptography aspect itself, and there's a lot more negotiation going on for those things. And for 1.3, I think especially for security reasons, they said, you know, we're going to cut the amount of ciphers you can use to just like a handful. <laughs> that's all. And that's 
significantly simplifies the handshake and the amount of messages you need. This is one of the reasons that TLS 1.3 is said to be more performant than 1.2, because it takes one less round trip. But that is because you have much less to negotiate because it has become arguably less complex to do this uh, cryptographic information exchange. In return, it has gained some additional features. This is true. You know, you now have early data, zero round trip, uh, zero RTT data, that kind of stuff. But essentially, again, for me, I started with 1.3, so I'm probably biased. But for me, (laughs) 1.3 is much, much simpler to understand than 1.2 in various ways. So if the question is, you know, why have protocols become more complex? I'm not sure that they have. Okay, so because these new protocols are being designed and developed with somewhat of a clean slate, it requires operators to alter their perceptions on how past protocols were configured and deployed. In some ways, yes. In other ways, no. I think maybe we can discuss this later as well. I think there are other truly clean slate efforts going on at this point, right? You have really, really new internet architectures like Scion or information-centric networking, that kind of stuff. That is mostly research-oriented. While the new protocols like Quick, like HTTP3 maybe, they feel like a clean slate because they kind of throw away everything atop IP, kind of. And so it feels like that. But in, in essence, again, they really reuse a lot of the things that we know, love or hate. <laughs> the way I always say it is they repackage everything we've learned the past 30 years, best practices, all of that into a single nice package that we can use. And a lot of that indeed comes from TCP was never made with security in mind. That has become painfully obvious. The OSI layer stack, we all know, uh, you know, layer five and layer six, we don't talk about. (laughs) But even the whole idea of having this layered stack, it works in some aspects. But in many others, it adds too much overhead for things like performance. And so it might be time to step back and just aggregate some of these layers, which is, I think, what Quick is kind of doing, combining transport and security into, again, one package, depending on how you look at it, to improve on that performance. So I do think that they are evolutions in the right steps. They are simplifying things because of what we learned about these protocols. But I would definitely not call them clean slate in how they fundamentally approach things. People are often like, this is this is a... One of the problems I've often seen with new people, they see Quick runs on top of UDP, and UDP has no retransmissions and has no congestion control, and so Quick also does not have that. And that is, of course, not true. Quick has very, very similar retransmission and congestion control to TCP. It just re-implements the stuff on top of UDP. You mentioned how these new protocols seek to employ what we've learned over the past 30 years. This hasn't necessarily extended to how to integrate them with current protocols, though, has it? Sadly, I think that is actually one of the biggest challenges that we face with these new protocols. They are quite a bit more difficult to integrate in a simple way into new applications. You really need quite a bit of expertise to integrate these new software libraries. Because most of the implementations, at least at this point, are done in user space. You don't get the nice socket API that you used to from uh, TCP and UDP. And so you also don't get the nice documentation or the wrapper libraries or anything like that that you have with those things. So they actually require quite a bit of effort to update and not just the software, but also some of the internal deployments. Think about load balancing, firewalling, actual TLS termination, the proxies that you have in modern setups. All of those have to change to properly use the new protocols. 
So maybe this is where the confusion of complexity arises, that while the protocols themselves have been simplified over time, their use and being able to plug and play in some respect is a lot more difficult than it has been in the past. Uh, This I definitely agree with. So when I say the protocols are not more complex, I primarily mean not more complex to understand, to Uh, understand their basic concepts, the basic things that they're trying to do. In terms of implementations and in practical use, I do think there is a severe increase of complexity there. One of the examples that is uh, usually used is the move for HTTP, which always used to be like a plain text ASCII protocol in HTTP 1.1, has now moved to a fully binary transport layer in between like the HTTP semantics like the actual headers for example you will use it still still use them as ASCII in your implementations but the way they are actually put on the wire is no longer the actual ASCII bytes they are actually both binary encoded and then we also have the concept of header compression with HPAC for HTTP2 and now QPAC for HTTP3 that actually makes them very very much more difficult to interpret it is even this bad that even today, even though we have had HTTP 3 for, let's say, two or three years now in some deployments already, Wireshark, the premium tools, does not have proper HTTP 3 support because the QPAC header compression stuff is so complex to do right <laughs> in that kind of environment that it has taken years and years of work to even get that in kind of a, in kind of a tool. And similarly for QPAC, there are actually... Most quick implementations or H3 implementations either use a single existing library, the one from Lightspeed called LSQPack, which seems to work quite well, or they simply don't implement any of the very complex stuff that QPack does. So the header compression stuff has, has two modes. It has a static mode that loses like a static compression table. You have to have that or things won't work. But then you have the, also the more complex uh, dynamic mode where you add things to the compression table as the connection is going on. And almost no one implements that at this point because it is so (laughs) complex, difficult to debug. There are still probably some security issues there that people have not discovered, probably. There are also some performance implications due to things like head-of-line blocking and stuff like that that we probably don't want to go into today. But there are aspects there. And I actually talked to one of the main implementers at the CDN yesterday, and they said, we want to do this eventually, but we don't see that the benefits we might get from the additional compression would be worth the complexity at this point. We have other things that we want to prioritize that might be more impactful than than header compression stuff. And so that is just one example for me where, yes, the implementation complexity has skyrocketed for some of these things. And that is a pity because it makes it indeed much more difficult for people to just jump in and use something like Fiddler or any type of other proxy and just look at what is going on on the wire, that's so much more difficult nowadays. You make a really valid point in terms of how these issues are nothing new for first adopters and onlookers, whereby once there's enough experience with new protocols and consequential support documentation, then it becomes a lot more palatable for organizations to start deploying them as it strips away the perceived complexity. On this point, the IETF obviously has an important role to play in developing this knowledge and documentation, as it does in developing new protocols too. (laughs) So I think in general, especially from people not involved, 
I often get this feeling that they misunderstand what the IETF actually is, especially for Quick. The idea is Google developed Quick, and it's a Google product, and they strong-armed everybody at the mythical IETF to now adopt it as a standard so that Google can now read everyone's traffic or whatever nonsense you sometimes see online. That, that's, of course, not true. What actually happens, the IETF, in my experience at least, is just a bunch of dedicated developers, engineers. There are no salespeople, no managers from the big companies. These are all very technical people. They come together and they figure out what these protocols should look like, driven by a very simple set of principles, things like make the internet better for as many people as possible. That is where, for example, a push for more encryption comes from. That push is not make sure that only Google can view what you do online. <laughs> you know, uh, There, of course, is still some of that. There are still big companies and they're driven by some incentives there. But in my experience, it's very technical. These are very honest, open people, and they are driven by the basic needs. And if you ask what, what, what benefit does that bring, Google comes to the IETF with Quick. It works. They've shown it works. And then the IETF will make sure it works in an interoperable way. And that is where the other engineers will start giving feedback. And they say, okay, these parts are good. These are more complex. They, they need to go. A core example with Quick was uh, Google rolled, rolled around crypto, <laughs> which is never a good idea unless you're Google, obviously. Uh, the ITF eventually pushed to swap Google's own crypto out for TLS 1.3, which is, again, a very interesting story because 1.3 was influenced by some of the crypto stuff Google did for Quick. So it's a very nice uh, circle of life thing going on there. But I've seen so many instances where you have engineers from other companies contributing new features to Quick. I think the Quick that we have today is conceptually very similar to most of what Google was doing. But technically, the details, how it's actually implemented, is maybe only 20%. Maybe not even that. And a lot of that is contributed by people from Microsoft, Mozilla, Fastly, Cloudflare, and many other bigger companies there. So I think that is one of the key points that the IETF does. It's really a collaborative effort to make these protocols interoperable. And to your question of making them easy to implement, well, these are actually the people that actually have to implement the software stack. Like the people in the Quick Writing Group are the people implementing this in Safari, in Firefox. They are implementing the servers at the several CDNs. So if they make it too difficult, they'll also have a hard time at their jobs, not just implementing, but later also deploying, supporting, optimizing. And so they have a very real incentive not to make these things very difficult. And so I think that does help keep complexity down, even though it might not look like that to the outside world. In some respects, the ITF acts like a playground whereby you can provide these new protocols to the people to play with and gain experience with. Importantly, you can then get feedback from these users that can help with interoperability and eventual wide-scale deployment. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I do think that the ITF isn't always very consistent on that. Right? They say things have to be deployed, they have to have running code before they are finalized as an RFC. And for some things, this is true. Like for Quick and HTTP3, this is definitely true. This went through a lot of testing through several years, annoyingly. Some of the other modern protocols are not that well tested or deployed, I would say. So it's, I think it's mostly for the big efforts that they, um, they emphasize that part too much, which I think is fine because those are most in need of having uh, these uh, things very well tested before they are finalized as a standard. 
that other people can then start uh, start working on. Um, but what, what I've seen with Quake, though, is that this causes a huge amount of churn as well. Quick implementations often had to rip out, and I'm not exaggerating here, rip out like 50% of their code or add in huge amounts of new code because things in the protocols changed. And that happened several times. I think we had three or maybe even four very big new features introduced in the three to four years. So this requires a considerable investment from these companies. They have money. They can. <laughs> but still, it's it's a big investment from engineering time and, and stuff. And it was incredible to me to see how they kept on committing to those things. I never heard or maybe just once, <laughs> I almost never heard the argument of this will cost us too much to redo our implementations. It was always, what is the best technical solution? What do we need to make this the best possible protocol? If we need to scrap large parts of the code, that's fine. We will just do that. The only one that I heard about that, that was actually very good. We wanted to introduce a lot of different quick versions just to prevent uh, ossification just to test that work. And then Google pushed back and said, you know, we run full test tweets for full Chrome, every new thing we do. So every quick version you add causes us a considerable amount of CO2 emissions <laughs> just running the tests. So maybe that's not a very good idea. But that's, I think, from my memory, the only time I heard that kind of argument made. And then it's not cost, it's cost in other areas, right? That's a good point about Google being committed to seeing this work because they understand the benefits. And as all protocol authors will no doubt attest, uh, there's a lot of selfless work, especially dealing with the churn for what is, at the end of the day, a free product that is being developed with the intention of improving the internet. Yeah, I fully agree. Another potential source of complexity that I wanted to pose to you is whether the culture of network design and engineering has changed over the years which has encouraged the addition of features to improve a network rather than making things simpler. Yeah, and again, I find myself not entirely agreeing with the question. Like, it is true, things are being added. Again, Quick adds several new things that, for example, TCP doesn't have. But this is not just because we're engineers and we want to abstract further or we want to be ready for the future. It's not like software engineering in that way that you try to predict what will happen, what kind of features we will need down the road, and now provision for it. Very, very little of that happens, at least in my experience with, for example, Quick. It is actually quite the opposite, I found, where they actively say, look, we don't know how we will want to do this in the future. We think we know, but until we start deploying it and actually need it, we won't know. And so as long as we don't know, we're not going to add this. A very good example for this, this was eye-opening for me, Quick version one does not have version negotiation or full-fledged version negotiation. And I was like, but how are you ever going to evolve? And they were like, we have the minimum, the bare minimum that we need down the line. If this is ever needed, then we will start implementing this um, in practice. And there are many, many other things there as well. For example, many people pushed for things like forward error correction, which Google Quick has. ITF Quick currently does not have. There is also multipath, which uh, ITF Quick does not have. All of these things are arguments made from people. We do not want to add this yet because we don't know yet how this will be properly used in the future. We will cross that bridge when we get to it. And I've seen a huge amount of things like that. Even with newer things, for people involved, you might have heard about the mask working group and HTTP capsules. 
which was a proposal to add a lot more complexity even on top of HTTP3 for some use cases. The details are not important, but again, there, a lot of pushback came to really, really simplify this. You know, we, we don't need all of this additional complexity just because we have a very rough idea of where we might want to go some down, down the future. We'll deal with it when it comes. And the idea, I think at least for Quick, this is what one of the things that make Quick so interesting for me is we have now set ourselves up to be able to do this much faster than with TCP. Because Quick is encrypted at the transport layer. In theory, deploying new versions of Quick will just include updating the clients and the servers and maybe some of the managed services in between. And that should, in theory, be enough. You don't have to update routers and firewalls and all the other stuff. And so we can add new stuff when we need it in the future. And so, again, Quick might seem complex to the outside, but it's actually like the minimal version, I think, of what we thought we needed for this new good base protocol that we will, we can later extend and use for uh, many, many different things. So start with a solid foundation that can be built on for years to come. And now, honesty does require me to give counter examples because it's it's not always <laughs> this true. Like it's always true that they try to prevent unnecessary complexity and only put in what they think will be practically useful and needed. It doesn't always turn out that way. <laughs> I uh, actually did a, a stand-up comedy bit on this <laughs> for the IETF at one point because it's so funny. There, there are things that have been discussed enormously much that end up not being used or not implemented by a lot of the bigger ones. One of the things in Quick is the spin bit. Again, I don't want to go into details, but people who want to learn something about ITF drama and huge amount of discussions for a single bit, like one bit in the Quick packet header, look up the spin bit. There have been amazing discussions on that. And nowadays, Google, uh, Mozilla, those kinds of big clients refuse to implement it. So it's usable, but it's not. Uh, other example, uh, HTTP server push, which allows you to not wait for an HTTP request. You can start sending response data for requests you think will come in in the future. I originally touted this being good for web performance, having lots of caching problems, uh, lots of overpushing. In the end, it has become deprecated. I think Google uh, Chrome is even removing it. So these are things that seem good at the start but underperforming practice later on. But you don't know that up front. And this is actually a very good example. I think push was added relatively late in HTTP2. And they did not have enough practical experience, not enough running code, not enough deployments actually using it. And it turned out that was uh, that was difficult. And I should also mention the thing that I've researched the most during my PhD, for example, is uh, HTTP prioritization. Again, the details don't matter, but in HTTP2, the prioritization mechanism is very complex. It requires you to build a prioritization tree where each of the nodes is an individual uh, data stream going over the connection and which should be sent first. And you can have round robin between them and a weighted round robin, all, all that kind of stuff. That was added late, was intended for a relatively CDN specific use case where the CDN wants to aggregate HTTP connections to an origin. So very complex and eventually used by absolutely None of the CDNs. <laughs> so we get a feature that was terribly implemented, that has a lot of bugs even today, that causes efficiency problems. And the reason why it's in there is not even being used in practice. And so the ITF tries to only add complexity where it's needed. Sometimes it fails. This is true. But luckily, we learned from our mistakes. And now HTTP3 actually threw out the entire HTTP2 prioritization mechanism 
replace it with something much, much simpler. Will this be better? We will see. You know, maybe HTTP4 will introduce something new. We'll see. But we try. We try to learn. In a way, it's taking the Facebook approach, isn't it? Uh, act fast, break things, and learn on the go. But not intentional. <laughs> <laughs> no, not intentionally. And some would contest not fast either. Jeff Houston actually talked about this latter point in a previous episode that it takes on average two years to develop an internet draft. And while large protocols like Quick quite rightly take a long time to develop, there are, as you say, many smaller projects they could have benefited from taking more time to test for interoperability. This is also another point I wanted to get your thoughts on too, as to the role of running code in the IETF today. Yeah, I completely agree with that. That's what I was trying to say earlier on. I, I have seen plenty of examples of running code, but I've also seen several examples where there should have been more. And I would phrase it slightly differently. Running code is not enough. We also need running tests. We also need running documentation. That's probably a terrible term, but we need better documentation on how these things are supposed to work. The RFCs themselves are barely enough for new people to understand what's going on. You need a lot of context, I think, to to be able to understand the finer points, like the edge cases in the RFCs. Not to understand what the edge cases are, but why are they there? When can they appear? How should I solve them? Those are things that are typically underemphasized. And again, I think Quick has been a very nice exception to this rule. But Quick, we have had a huge amount of tests being added by the community, people really emphasizing that. But even then, things are slipped through the cracks. And I, I've recently been doing some research on the newer DNS protocols, DNS over TLS, DNS over HTTP, DNS over Quick. And those, in my opinion, might have been pushed through a bit too early with not enough deployment experience because we have seen some pretty big bugs in real-world deployments for these protocols. They, they work at face value, they work, but they really don't use any of the proper efficiency gains or, or the new features that the new protocols ostensibly allow you to have. And they often get it very wrong. And whether or not the IETF can prevent that or should prevent that, is a difficult decision. But in my opinion, there should be more emphasis on testing, running code, reference implementations, reference APIs. They should do more of that. I like your term running documentation, Robin. We all know documentation is gold as it provides the context that people often lack. So continually keeping it and references updated is something that everyone would benefit from and would go a long way to overcome any perceived complexity, you would think. While we're on the topic of the IETF, I wanted to discuss your experience at the IETF as a relatively new participant and the importance of having new participants from various industries bringing their different perspectives of problems as well as supporting these new participants so they don't become overwhelmed. I fully agree. And that is actually a a topic that I've thought about quite a bit recently. There's been a lot of discussion about is how, how do you get new blood into the IATF, and then also what type of new blood. In my experience, there are two main groups. You either are an engineer at one of the big companies, and you actually get to work on these systems, and you can deploy, and you can measure, and you can do all of the things. And then you have the other people, people from either smaller companies that might not have the big deployments or the insights, or people like me. I started as an academic, as a PhD researcher coming in. In the second group, you typically lack a lot of context first. You, you have a lot less broader view of these things. 
a lot less experience uh, of these things. And you don't really see the complexity of the underlying systems that people at CDNs or people at Amazon, for example, are dealing with. And so for me, it was very frustrating at the beginning to contribute meaningful things because the people at bigger companies, they seem to be like not just one, but like four or five steps ahead of you. Some of the discussions that they're having, you simply have no idea what they're talking about. It's very difficult to graduate from this naive introduction to being a successful contributor down the line, especially if you don't work at a bigger company. But I do think we need people not from the bigger companies to keep contributing. And I think that is where the ITF is also a little bit lacking, at least at this point. They don't put in enough effort to aid people like me or people from smaller companies to get more involved, to stay, to actually contribute. I have a very fun anecdote about that. (laughs) I think at least now it's fun. It wasn't at the time. The very first issue I opened in an IETF repository was for Quick, very originally on. And I I came in and I I was trying to implement Quick myself very early on. And one of the biggest complexities there was TLS and how to interact with TLS. And the message format that was used in the drafts, in the documents to describe what Quick interaction should look like, how the bytes should actually be, that was very difficult for me to understand. And I asked Lars, Lars Eggert, who is now like the chairman of the ITF, who is then group chair, like, this is not a very readable format, you know? Is this something I should propose changing or can we have a discussion about that? And he was like, sure, open an issue. (laughs) So naive, I opened the issue and, you know, who, of course, made the format? And it was apparently the format that was used in TLS 1.3 at that point as well. I didn't know, but it was. The, the format's originator is, of course, Ecker, Eric Riscorla, uh, a CTO at Mozilla. And he, you know, in typical Ecker style, if you know him, I love him, but he's very direct. He was basically like, no, no, that's a terrible idea. The format is perfectly capable as it is. And you should not complain about this. He was kind about it. It was not like, but that's kind of the message. And to be honest, that shut me down for two to three months. I was afraid to open new issues for two to three months just because of this initial bad experience, especially because Lars initially had said, yes, open an issue for this, this will be fine. And so this is, of course, anecdotal, but I feel this kind of thing does happen if you look at the mailing lists, if you look at also at the, at the meetings themselves. It's very difficult for new blood to come in and feel like they contribute meaningfully to this existing group of very smart, very experienced people with all this context. And not enough is being done to facilitate that, in my experience. And I hope that I will be able to do more myself in the future. I can attest to it being daunting to go along to an ITF meeting in person or online and attend a working group session and they all just carry on the conversation from four months prior without any context. I respect that this is how it is and has been and is no doubt efficient, but it is daunting for someone new. To which my suggestion is to engage as a listener and find someone who can help provide the context and answer the dumb questions. I just wanted to return to the question though and get your thoughts on the role of participants like yourself who come from academia. What can they still bring to the ITF? Yeah, this feeling that academia can contribute is somewhat there. You have the IRTF, right? The Internet Research Task Force that does have involvement also from the engineers from bigger companies. 
especially for some of the research groups. You have uh, the NRW, so the Applied Networking Research Workshop that has very applied papers. And then you have several working groups where they also invite academics to come talk about their findings. And some of these things is interesting. This is one of the things I found so very weird or nice, surprising to find it to see that there can be a place for academics even in this environment of all these very smart people at the big companies because they don't always have the time or sometimes even not the know-how to actually do these tests or to evaluate these deployments. And so as an academic, I do think you can have an impact. I think I was able to have a small but significant impact. But my point is mainly that it is difficult to do so. It is difficult to get encouraged. And it is difficult to see progress in, say, your first two years. Because as you say, at first, it's a lot of listening. It's a lot of getting to know, getting to know the processes, getting to know the people, uh, learning that you indeed need to understand context from not just last meeting, but the meeting before. And you need to primarily know all the RFCs that are <laughs> tied to this one proposal because people expect you to do so. But once you do that, I have found it is definitely possible. Again, my anecdotal experience there is that what I did was primarily make debugging tools for Quick and HTTP training. Very visual tools, things like what you will find in, in Wireshark, but then specifically for Quick and H3 because Wireshark did not have support at that time. And I was very surprised to see that picked up. Like eventually Facebook, Apple, Cloudflare, they're all using my tools as a simple academic PhD student. And I was very amazed by that. Why don't these companies just do this themselves? They can do this much better than what I'm doing. And one of the main reasons they said to me is, we don't have the know-how in our, in our teams. We have protocol experts. We can implement this in C++. We can't make a, a nice JavaScript visualization in a web page. And nor do we have like information visualization insight in how to best make these very specific tools. So they would end up with like generic Excel graphs, line graphs, bar charts, plots. Well, what I was able to do on our team is make very specific visualizations that show you the data in slightly different ways that make it so much easier to interpret what is going on with the different protocol things that the teams themselves say that would have taken them months or years to get to that kind of point. And they simply don't have the time. They don't have the manpower because they're busy tuning congestion controllers and uh, you know optimizing video streaming, all the important stuff. So to get back to that, the IETF, I think, definitely has a place for the smaller companies, definitely has a place for the academics. But at this point, they have to push through too much at the start to get there. And that can be improved. Getting that sort of feedback from users must have been really hardening, especially as a PhD student. What were some of the key measurement and usability lessons you learned from this feedback? The biggest thing there is that the tools that I made are web-based, so they're in a web browser. And this has been instrumental in getting them adopted, I think. You can very easily just upload a quick log file and immediately get it visualized. You can share uh, visualizations because it's just a web. They don't have to install anything. It's very easy. The big downside of that, though, the challenge there is that it doesn't really scale to very large log files. I think depending on your computer, you can load up to, like, let's say, 500 megabytes of logs. And then, of course, the browser is going to say, this is way too much memory for a single tab. Please don't. And then we try to make installers with something like Ion Framework, where you have the bundled V8 engine as like a desktop application. And so that works a little bit better, but still has significant performance issues. 
And I thought that was not going to be the big thing. But I turned out to be so wrong because once you start talking about congestion control experiments, video streaming experiments on multi-gigabit backbone networks, you're going to have gigabit long logs as well. And the tools absolutely don't support that. And even for the slightly smaller log files, let's say the three, four hundred megabyte <laughs> tiny things, really, even there, I didn't build in too many uh, filtering or searching tools because I was mainly using this for academic research. And there you have relatively small things where the interesting stuff is happening at the beginning or very well-defined parts in there. So having the need for the searching tools and that kind of stuff, this is really the moment you cross from this is a very usable tool in visualization to this is practically usable in a day-to-day debugging setup in an actual company, CDN scale. And the companies were able to work around this internally mostly. They do their own log slicing now, so they have smaller parts of the logs. They have their own internal searching that they can do. They can say, okay, I want just this part of the log. Show me this inside of the tool, that kind of stuff. So those are apparently things that you can very easily work around. In terms of the visualizations themselves, I've gotten relatively little feedback or relatively little questions of, you know, this would be a much better visualization. Can you make that? That is easier because I am a genius and do everything correct the first time. I seriously doubt that. What I think it is, is that as network engineers, we are not yet used to advanced complex tooling. We are used to manually looking through Wireshark traces. We, we don't even use the Wireshark visualizations all that often because, in my opinion, they're not very good. But we are not used to having these complex, nice tools that visualize these things. And so we don't know what to expect. And one counterpoint there, the one very concrete feedback I did get that blew my mind was from Jana Iyengar. Now at Fastly, but used to work on Quake at Google. And I had this nice, it's called a congestion graph. And it just shows, you know, the amount of outgoing packets, the acknowledgements. It's also in Wireshark. I think it's a sequence diagram called there for TCP. But so for Quake, it just showed the packets going out, the acknowledgements. And then it shows a congestion window and it calculates the transfer rate at any given time. That's it. And Jana said, what I really want, the most powerful feature, they had a tool similar to that internal in Google. The most powerful feature they have it's just a ruler that you can just click on one point of the graph, you drag your mouse to the other point of the graph, and the slope of the graph, it tells you how much data was transferred in this time interval. So it shows you this was 10 megabits, it was, this was 20 megabits. And I was like, but you can get that from just correlating with the i-axis and then looking at the x-axis. And, then, and he's like, yes, but that requires a lot of fast math. And it's so much easier if I can just click drag, it shows me the outcome. I don't have to do it. And apparently that is one of the most used features. (laughs) Also at Google, at Facebook, with people using this for congestion control, that is one of the features they, they like most about it. And I would have never thought of that myself because I have never done congestion control debugging at scale. That's a great demonstration of the worth of feedback from real world users. And it brings us back to the importance of collaboration between different industries, doesn't it? As you said before, network operators have been doing these things the hard way for so long because that's all they knew. But as data collection and measurement tools have become more advanced, we should be turning to data analysts and those with user experience to improve how we measure and monitor our networks. As making the data more easily readable can make testing, troubleshooting and tuning so much quicker and more refined. I completely agree. That's one of the things I'm trying to push in the IETF as well. We've talked about running code, running documentation, running tests. 
one of the things I would very much like is a requirement or a soft requirement to have running debugability, running observability in your protocols as well. So that's one of the things we're working on the quick working group. It's called QLog. It's like a standardized logging format for Quick and HTTP3 right now. But the idea is maybe we can extend this to many other protocols. You would end up with something like Yang. People know Yang. But then for debugging purposes, for observability purposes, where you kind of expect implementations to have a very clear way for people to observe what is going on in a standardized structured format that is cross-implementation usable. And that would then make it much easier to write tools on top. And then we can, again, have people from smaller companies or academics come in. And even those that don't have the necessary protocol experience, once they have that kind of logging layer that they can work from, they don't have to dive into the C++ code to add print statements. I don't know what, they just get it. That could kickstart some of this and could help. And I think having additional tooling there, for me, I'm, again, biased because this is my thing. (laughs) But I think a bigger focus on tooling is definitely one of the future directions that the IETF should explore and that can have a big positive influence uh, down the line. I think that wraps up the discussion really nicely, Robin. It comes back to the importance of measuring these things, not just when they're implemented, but thinking about how to do this when they are developed and having this observability baked into them, which you can only think will help with reducing the perceived complexity. Thank you so much for joining us, Robin. Thank you for letting me ramble for all this time. I hope it was interesting (laughs) for people at home. And I would say, you know, there's so much more stuff out there. I've tried to make a lot of this more insightful for non-experts as well. So look at some of my content on YouTube. I also have several blog posts. If you're interested in approachable content on Quick and HTTP 3, it is out there. (laughs) Thanks. And uh, looking forward to the next episodes of the podcast. Thanks, Robin. Yes, we'll be sure to add links to some of those resources in the show description. And thanks to those of you who have made it this far. We hope you've enjoyed the show. If so, please subscribe, write a review and tell your colleagues about it. If you'd like to learn more about Quick, we have a range of stories on it on the APNIC blog. Finally, if you've got a story or research to share, get in contact via email, ping at apnic.net or our APNIC social media channels. And be sure to check out the APNIC website for all your resource and community needs. Until next time.